Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 30 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I'm talking with Maggie Morrison. Maggie is a pianist and accompanist at the Royal Conservatory of Music, and she's also pursuing her doctorate at the University of Toronto. In this episode, Maggie and I discuss her early music experiences, some of her career experiences, as well as her research examining representation in the Royal Conservatory of Music's piano syllabi. And so we discuss this idea of representation in music conservatories and that sort of curriculum area, as well as representation in classical music in general. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this episode. Please share with your friends and let us know what you think, and I will see you next Monday. Maggie Morrison, and I was born in Brantford, Ontario. For hockey lovers, many know Brantford as Wayne Gretzky's hometown. (laughs) It's about an hour southwest of Toronto, which is where I live now. I grew up with a musical family. My mom was actually a pianist growing up, and to this day is still a piano teacher practicing in Brantford, has a wonderful studio, thriving. And my mom got into music because of my grandfather who really valued education and music and grew up uh, in the Salvation Army and played trombone, I believe. Or maybe it was tuba, <laughs> or maybe it was both. <laughs> but yeah, so I come from a line of musical people um, on my mom's side. And, uh, you know, there are pictures and stories of me as a baby in a crib beside the piano where my mom was teaching. And there's a picture of me in diapers on my tippy toes, reaching up for the keys. I must have not even been two years old or maybe just about two years old so it was kind of one of those things that I don't ever remember not being musical I don't remember not playing the piano because it was just so integrated in my in my family in my family daily life and it came naturally to me and it was just the thing that I loved and I just I I never gave up uh I studied with a piano teacher. Her name was Virginia Blaha in Brantford uh, from the time that I was four until I was 14. And she's actually the mom, the late mother of Bernadine Blaha, who is a professor and concert pianist at USC. The music world is so small. (laughs) And from there, I went to a pre-college program in Toronto at the Royal Conservatory called the Glenn Gould school, the Young Artist Performance Academy, and stayed there for many years. And then I went to the States. I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music for my bachelor's and master's degree, graduated from there in 2014. And then I moved back to Canada. I moved to Toronto in 2015 and started 
studying at the University of Toronto in 2016 in the Doctorate of Music program. And I'm currently in my fifth year there, kind of trying to wrap up all of my research and work that I've done there up to this point. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that summarization of your life. That was so great. Usually I have <laughs> to like welcome. pry people to talk to me a little bit more about their education experiences and everything, but you gave me like the whole shebang. So that was awesome. Well, I have to say I'm a huge podcast fan in general. I love listening to people speak, huge nerd in general. So I've, I've always wanted to be part of a podcast. So I'm, I'm super honored and thrilled to be talking to you today. Yay! Oh, that's awesome. Yay. That's so great. <laughs> you provided me a little bit of um, background information about you, so I just want to delve into some of this a little bit. So what caused you to um, want to pursue music professionally? Was a specific moment or experience that made you want to pursue music professionally? I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to do. Um, mm, yeah. When I was, you know, I just, there was nothing. <laughs> When I was uh, 14 and I started studying at the conservatory, I was immersed in that world. You know, I became crazy about Martha Argerich and Sviatoslav Richter and all of these incredible musicians and then was kind of, you know, brought into that world. And I just, I didn't want to leave. It was, it was just kind of my, my goal. Um, I'm Capricorn. I'm a goat. And it was just kind of this mountain that I've, I've been climbing ever since, you know, even when things are hard, I, you know, stayed put, even if I wasn't progressing, I, I didn't go back down the mountain. I just stayed where I was, you know, I, I just keep on pursuing that, pursuing that dream. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I always tell people that that was my reason too. I mean, I obviously had some really great teachers in my life that inspired me to pursue music professionally, but it was also just down to it like I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else and yeah one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got was from one of my all-state conductors when I went to all-state I think it was my junior year of high school and one of the kids asked him what made you want to get into music in the first place like what advice would you give someone who was thinking about pursuing music at the collegiate level and he said if you can imagine yourself doing anything else go do that. Because yeah. he said, music school will take everything out of you. And he said, if you should only go if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm walking over here because that's exactly the same advice I got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it takes yeah. so much work. It takes you, you're immersed in it constantly 24 seven, that if you are not, if that is not 100% your thing, then you shouldn't go. <laughs> right. Like that's basically Do what he said. Else. Exactly. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I was like, you know what? Yeah. You know what? This is my thing. I can't see myself doing anything else. And that that's kind of what made me um, pursue it professionally as well. So we have that in common with each other. Love that. Love that. Yeah. And I uh, love how you mentioned that you were a Capricorn. That was cool. Cool analogy there. Good. Yeah. I'm a Virgo. So uh, well, Oh, I love Virgos. Two of my best friends are Virgos. There we go. Yeah, you know, and just to go off of what you were saying as well, one of my teachers who I studied with before going to Cleveland, he was a graduate of Eastman. You're at Eastman right now, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm at Eastman yeah. right now, yeah. Okay, so he was um, a doctorate grad from there in piano. His name is Dr. Greg Butler. And he used to say to me, Maggie, it's not getting into school that's going to be the challenging part. It's getting out of it, mm. graduating. 
And I didn't understand that at all. I just thought, what are you, what are you talking about? If I can get through it. But, you know, in particular with the doctorate degree that I'm working on right now, that definitely rings true. As an undergrad, my head was so buried in the sand. You know, I had, I was so focused on the end goal. As I got older, different things opened up in my life and I became interested in, you know, so many different things. It became more challenging to keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, keep going, keep going, keep going. But yeah, I mean, bottom line is if I could have imagined myself doing something else at this point, I definitely would be doing that. Mm. You mentioned, you know, before you're studying in Cleveland. So let's fast forward a little bit to your time at CIM. How was that experience for you? Um, Because you were there for both your bachelor's and your master's. It was wonderful. You know, Cleveland is a great place to study because there's not a lot of distractions Mm -hmm. there. You know, you have the orchestra, you have the art museum, and you have this wonderful community, um, which is the conservatory. And uh, it was it was fantastic. You know, I loved it so much. I stayed for an extra two years to do my master's degree. There you go. Um, it was incredibly intense. For the first two years of undergrad, I had music theory every day, Monday to Friday for an hour. And as somebody who was strong musically, you know, and at the instrument, but not necessarily, I didn't necessarily know exactly what I was doing with music theory and music harmony and all that jazz. It was, it was intense. It was very much focused on music, 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 right? I mean, we had some of our academics through Case Western University and those were challenging, but the, the most challenging part was truly the, um, the requirements and the, the levels of what they expected from students and in their musical development. Yeah. But, you know, wonderful friends that I met there, wonderful colleagues, again, a great place to study. Very different from, say, a Toronto, where I've been doing my doctorate degree, where there's a plethora of things that you can be doing. So, you know, two very different experiences. And the other major difference is the fact that I grew up in the conservatory system. I graduated with my master's degree, I think I was 24. And, you know, the university experience that I've had at U of T, at the University of Toronto, has been so different. It's definitely expanded my mind. I have had the opportunity to take seminars with teachers that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to connect with had I gone to a conservatory for my doctorate. Actually, a lot of my research was opened up to me through a seminar that I took called Unpopular Music Education. And it was with Dr. Nassim Nicknaf, who is a music education professor at U of T. And through that seminar, I started to become more aware of issues that classical music has through the music education lens because so much of conservatory training is based on tradition whereas music education is based on society so yeah it's been it's you know it's it's easy to look back on your life and say oh yeah I see how I got to where I'm at but 
truly, I don't think I would be where I'm at if I, if I hadn't had the university experience post-master's graduation at the conservatory. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point, too, um, the differences between different types of music schools and what um, opportunities they provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for example, I mean, my undergrad is from the Baldwin Wallace Conservatory of Music, which you may be familiar with because that's like 20 minutes from CIM. Sure um, am. Yeah, so I went there for my undergrad um, in music ed, and then I, now I'm at Eastman for my master's. So even just the differences between those two schools, um, having a conservatory within a larger university and then having basically just the music school. I mean, Eastman is kind of tied with U of R, but not mm -hmm. directly like Baldwin Wallace was. Certainly. So yeah, that difference there is, is very, is notable and provides different sort of experiences for students for sure. Yes, isn't it? It's so interesting. And it's so interesting that they haven't been so connected. You know, they are truly two separate entities. And I think classical music has a lot to learn from um, music education research. Yeah, I would completely agree. And speaking about that traditional sort of mentality of classical music, what are your opinions about that sort of conservatory mentality of that traditional view of classical music and how that ties into a modern approach to classical music and what we're experiencing today with orchestras struggling to get people in the seats and things like that? Certainly. So, you know, I want to start off by saying that I wouldn't change a thing in terms of my own education and my own path. Yeah. I studied with a lot of tough cookies, <laughs> you know, tears at the lessons, crying, you know, um, really harsh words, you know, wicks on the finger bleeding, like just really intense stuff. You know, that is something that I honor, but it's not necessarily my approach to learning or teaching at this point in time. The conservatory experience, I think, needs to be reshaped in a lot of ways to, yeah. um, to reflect the society that we live in today. You know, I mean, it was uh, researcher Christopher Small who said that music is ultimately a social construct. And at a time in history when we have just experienced the largest social movement with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and, you know, people discussing the need for systems to be completely restructured, I think it's time for classical music to do the same, more inclusive. It needs mm -hmm. to be more accessible. You know, one of the things that I struggle with is the issue of the piano as an instrument. A piano is an expensive investment, you know, especially compared to, say, a keyboard. Is it fair for a teacher to not allow someone to study with them because they have a keyboard rather than a piano when it's a socioeconomic issue? These are the kinds of questions that, you know, I've been kind of asking myself over the last year. Yeah. And, you know, with my, with my research at U of T, with my, with my thesis, I am researching representation in the Royal Conservatory of Music piano curriculum, the piano syllabus, over the last five editions. So from 1988 until 2015. And I'm researching representation within the composers. Mm. And when I began this process, I was approaching it from a feminist perspective. And quickly, with the help of my professor, uh, Nassim Niknaf, realized that 
Yeah, indeed. There has been an increase in representation of female composers from 3% in 1988 to 19% in 2015. However, of these 71 female composers that have been included in the 2015 syllabi, most of them are white. Yeah. And, you know, there, there is a huge correlation with um, the rise of feminism that we first saw in the 1960s, the first wave of feminism with white women, white women being those who were able to bring this to the forefront. And, you know, I can't help but look at this little bit of society, this little, you know, piece of history via the Royal Conservatory of Music curriculum and see a pattern. Mm. Yeah. Um, so now my research is an intersection of gender and race. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's kind of, uh, again, back to the idea of tradition with conservatory, we are taught that this is the way things are, period. And we accept it, you know, because we've been immersed in this world for such a long time. But when you pause and take a step back, you realize that so much of it has been seeded, has been grown upon patriarchal soil, which is, you know, not, not specific to classical music. It's, it's a world issue. But, you know, here we are in 2020. And I guess the question is, what are we going to do about it? Before you go on, talk about a couple of things that you were saying, because I think just some of the stuff you were saying was so brilliant. Um, First thing you were talking about um, when when you're talking about the conservatory and this curricula that you were um, examining uh, and this idea that we were kind of taught to just accept what is, right? And I think that also comes down to this idea of when we go to a music school or we study with a teacher or things like that, they are seen as an authoritative figure and everything that they say is right. And that's the way it is, right? We aren't really taught to like question who Mm. we are, what we're doing, what the system is, what we are learning. We We aren't giving enough credit to students to go explore and question things and really um, develop and study what you want to study. I actually talked about this in a previous interview about how we were talking about some of the um, pieces that are required for students to learn. And we obviously talked about the importance of learning standards and things like that for technique, but there should also come a point where students are encouraged to explore music of underrepresented composers, explore different types of music that they may not necessarily have been exposed to in that general curriculum. Um, So what you were saying made me think about that interview and how important it is that we are encouraging students to have their own voice, to make their own decisions, and to question those systems that, hey, may not seem right to a lot of people. Yes, 100%. And and that's, that's an element as well that goes hand in hand with my research, which is suggesting that another list be added to this curriculum, Mm. which is a representation of BIPOC music. Yeah, because that's a great Um, way to keep classical music going and keep it more relevant and not just have the same things over and over and over again. I mean, I could learn the Hindemith Trumpet Sonata 30 times over, (laughs) but what is that teaching me after I've already performed it? You know, what is that exactly? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've, you know, I've been at university now for what, 11 years or something wild like that. And 
I'm coming out of it and sure, I can play the piano well, but what does that mean for the world at large? I'm, I'm much more interested in the social, emotional and mental health and well-being of myself and those around me and my students and, um, you know, the future of the world of classical music. You know, and I think that there should be some programs and initiatives included to help people feel comfortable at the symphony. Yeah. You know, I've been going to the symphony for 30 years. I'm, I'm 31 years old. I'll be 32 in January. And there's still a stiffness that I feel every time I go. Mm. So I bring people with me all the time. And there's always this, you know, anxiety and worry. Oh, do I clap now? Do I not clap now? Like, wouldn't it be, you know, and some people will roll in their grave and scoff and roll their eyes at me. But what if we could cheer and clap and whistle and hoot and holler? Or like, what if we could have snacks when we're at the orchestra? Yeah. And you know what? what? That's not baby cries. That whole stiffness and that whole mentality that's associated with that has not been the case for for all of history, right? Like way back in the day, you attended an orchestra, you attended an opera, people were playing cards, people were smoking, people were talking to each other, people were having a good time. It was a social event with the music involved, right? So it's not like this has always been the tradition either. Absolutely. Well, you know, back to Paris in the early 1900s, you know, with with the debut of, say, the Rite of Spring, people... Mm -hmm freaked out there was there were riots and and that was acceptable because you were allowed to respond to the music so I don't know how we've turned it into this kind of constricted experience but how incredible would it be if we could create that expansion again yeah because you know ultimately I love Beethoven (laughs) Mm -hmm. he is my one of my favorite classical composers but do I love going to see a Beethoven symphony? You know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't, I would almost rather listen to it at home and have yeah. my snacks and be able to chat and say, oh, wow, did you hear that? That was inc- incredible. I haven't heard it like that before. And have this kind of open conversation around music. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a stiff experience. And I think that that's where we have to go with it. Now, not to say that I don't respect and value tradition and culture, but I just, I think that we've maybe taken it a little bit too far to the other side. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And I feel like it can't be that entertaining for the symphony orchestra musicians either to have to play the same symphonies every single season. I feel like after a point, there's, there's no feeling or passion put in the music anymore. It's kind of like, yep, this is my job. I'm clocking in, I'm clocking out, done. Especially if you're mm-hmm. a person that's been playing in an orchestra for like 30 plus years. What, right. where is that happening, right? And we're in, and a lot of, I feel like a lot of orchestras as of late, like if you listen to recordings of certain symphony orchestras from like decades ago, they sound so much different from one another than they do now. It's kind of like this whole laser beam, everything has to be perfect kind of mentality that's happening now. And so a lot of orchestras are starting to sound the same. <laughs> oh, and so there's it's so boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no, there's no interpretation of the work coming out anymore. There's no distinct, mm-hmm. this is the Chicago symphony. Right. This is the Cleveland right. Orchestra. The sound. 
this That's is right. the LA Phil, right? And you could That's listen right. to a recording and be like, yep, I can tell you exactly what orchestra that is. It's harder to do that now. Indeed, yeah. You know, and I, I can't help but think back to the rise of the symphony orchestra, this idea of clocking in and clocking out, this idea of providing a service. And you know that's that's where I think classical music has gotten a little bit lost. We we don't we don't want perfection over expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not to say that we want it to be super sloppy either, but like there has to be a middle ground. There has to be a common ground. It can't. Yeah. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And you were talking mm -hmm. about your research in this curricula, and you were approaching it from a, a feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. And then you were talking about how you're kind of transitioning that into more of an intersectional approach, right? Looking at it from right. not only gender, but also race as well. Can you delve into a little bit more about that research and more currently how you're doing this approach with this intersectionality piece? Certainly. So, you know, one of the issues with race and classical music is this idea of tokenism. So there's, you know, the token black composer in Canada, it's been Oscar Peterson, you know, kind of trying to cover all of the bases without having it be an integrated approach. And this is, this is seen throughout classical music. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of my research began in the music education field. And then from there, I went out into more of the conservatory approach in terms of um, pedagogy. Now, with, with race, there's the critical race theory, right? Which suggests that there's one race that is preferred and all other races come second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. That is very alive and true in classical music right now. It's still very much a white experience. So my question is, though my research is uncovering this in, you know, through the Royal Conservatory of Music, but this is just a jumping off point to ask where do we go from here? How do we create a system that is more reflective of the society that we live in today, you know, especially in Canada, especially in a, in a city like Toronto, which is incredibly diverse. Thank God. We don't, we don't want to all be the same. So that's, that's where I'm at with it right now. I am uh, continuing to work on my dissertation, continuing to study earlier versions of the syllabus. And, you know, the next version of the syllabi comes out in of the syllabus comes out in 2022 and you know how incredible would it be to include a list of greater representation yeah i think that's so fascinating i think it's also important to talk about you were talking about the original trajectory from 1988 um, through 2015 and how the women representation in the curricula went from what was it like three percent to 19 percent yes which is a huge leap, but also it's, it's kind of sad leap. when you think about it, you're like still like, oh, 19%, that's not a very high number, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the conservatory is a wonderful institution. Some of my happiest memories, um, especially of my teenage years, were in that building, making memories and music with the friends and professors that I met there. And, you know, I think that they are an institution that is um, open 
to expansion for sure. But you know, it's uh, like I said previously, this is a this is a time when we are finally talking about things that had previously been unspoken, not allowed, taboo. And, you know, now fast forward to October 21st, 2020, we are able to have these kinds of conversations without feeling like we could be ostracized. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really grateful that my life and my research has gotten me to this point. Um, and I'm, I'm most excited to see with where we can go from here because, you know, collective healing begins with the self. And after I realized this, you know, in terms of gender and race representation, I, I can't go back. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. When I started this research and approaching this, and it, it started off from an educational standpoint, you know, like what I could do in my classroom to actively help the students that I see every day and the representation issue that exists in music education, I just started down this rabbit hole of going, hey, this is so much bigger than that. This We're talking about all of music here. And that's obviously one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to get that word out and look for solutions and say, hey, how can we, as professionals in the field, help change this? Right. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorite authors and readers, uh, writers, researchers is Bell Hooks. And, you know, she believes that ultimately it all begins with self-love. If we love ourselves, we can love another, we can love many, we can love the community, we can love the world. And ultimately that's what I believe as well, that love and acceptance and connection are the answers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think your research is just so fascinating and approaching this from a curriculum approach. I mean, this is something that I do all the time, my school and obviously K-12 education, but have you in your research, obviously this is more about, you know, observing um, the trajectory of how this is going, but have you developed some um, solutions and some practical ways or ideas that um, not only conservatories, but anyone in any form of teaching could approach this to make the repertoire more diverse? Well, I think it begins with offering or discussing the possibility of a hybrid between music education and classical music classes and seminars. Yeah. Right now, they are two separate entities. And what we need is a blending of the two, not just for the classical music world, not just for the music education world, but for everybody. There is so much to be learned from music education research in classical music, and we just need to create that bridge. I think that that would be a good place to start. Yeah, I completely agree. I think every performance major that even has the inkling of thinking that they're going to be teaching in any sort of capacity, whether it's privately or in a studio or something like that, should be taking some form of music education classes yeah. to bridge that gap and to say, hey, this is what teaching is really like. These are the things that you need to think about um, and how you approach because a lot of my friends that were performance majors all the way through school never had experiences like that and honestly struggled a lot when it came to starting to actively teach beyond just some mm -hmm. of the minor teaching that they were doing while they were in school. And I found that they were reaching out to music ed majors that were in school and they're going like, hey, how do you deal with this problem? How do you deal with this in a student? Sure. Um, and it's just those basic things that, yeah, I do agree with you, that gap needs to be bridged. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is, it's, it's funny with music 
performance degrees because we spend so much time practicing, 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 performing, performing, listening, 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 because we want to be performers. But the truth of the matter is, even if we are the best performers out there, we are still highly sought after teachers. Yeah. And that is a piece of the pie that's just simply missing right now. Yeah. You know, so we, we need to, again, this is a time when there are so many aspects of the world that are being restructured. I, I think that this is another part of the world that should be, that should also be restructured and reexamined and questioned and, you know, cause we can, we can create a future of, of highly uh, able thinkers, but we have to give them the tools to do so. You know, like I said before, I've been in university for over a decade and it wasn't until this year that I learned the definition anti-racist. You know, like I really had to think about that for a while, right? So of course there is so much to be learned in terms of the traditions and the the customs of, of classical music, but there's a great deal of room for expansion. And this idea of being an anti-racist and being comfortable and understanding where our biases exist, mm-hmm. what norms we could have learned growing up that could cause those barriers between minoritized populations and how we are approaching education, how we're approaching music and those sorts of things and actually coming to terms with the fact that you know everybody has bias, these things exist, but we all need to be actively anti-racist in order to break down these systems that exists, you know, not only in society, but also in music and in classical music, because they are pretty prevalent in our profession. Certainly. And I love how you said actively anti-racist, because that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. There's this analogy, um, people often talk about this conveyor belt sort of mentality, where you can be, you know, you could consider yourself to not be a racist, and you're just kind of floating down this conveyor belt. But in order to be an active anti-racist, you need to be walking against the conveyor belt yep. to break down these systems. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So that's something that I always, I always think about, like how I can actively combat these systems, not only in my teaching, but in me as a professional musician and things like that. And what repertoire I choose and all sorts of other different approaches that I use. And I think that's, that's honestly where it starts is in K-12 education, right? Yeah. Um, and, and to bring that to the collegiate level and then further bring that to the, to, to professional world, because I feel like it's just this big cyclical thing. Like what came first, the chicken or the egg, where do right. we <laughs> combat this problem? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah, so you also have your own private studio as a pianist in Toronto, um, and then you also work as an accompanist at the Royal uh, Conservatory of Music. And so I, I was thinking of that when I was talking about playing the same standard rep over and over and over again <laughs> as, a, as a student, and I'm sure that's the same uh, when you're a staff accompanist because you probably have to play the same pieces over and over and over again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for students. So how is, how is that experience for you being a staff accompanist? Well, you know, I, uh, I don't feel any way about it because again, I grew up playing a lot of these standard pieces, this standard yeah. repertoire. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with them. I just think that there needs to be additional material that's modern 
and uh, you know an update to to the heavy hitters so to speak yeah yeah um again an expansion of the of the classic repertoire yeah i completely agree there's no reason why we shouldn't be removing all this stuff but just adding things as we go not the same things from the same time period because it's not that music isn't being made it's that it's just not being performed right just kind of Mm -hmm. chilling there and it's waiting for people to discover it exactly i mean i think a lot of it just needs to be unearthed and 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 shared yeah you know because i mean these these composers it's not their fault (laughs) yeah it's 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 again the fact that music is a social construct so we have picked and chosen what is is going to survive through tradition through performance tradition and again you know we've we've made it thus far there's I don't I'm not playing the the blame game the shame game there's none of that over here I'm just simply saying that there's a lot of work we can do to move in a positive direction yeah I completely agree and I guess my final question for you is with all of this research that you have done and you have accumulated over the years um, in your doctorate, what do you think is the next step for you? Now that you've acquired all this knowledge, um, what do you think is the next step for you? And also, what do you think is the next step for music in order to take what you have learned and, you know, put it out there and actively seek to make, you know, classical music better? So, it's such an interesting time right now, you know, life in the time of COVID. Um, yes. <laughs> never would I have thought that I would be an online piano teacher. But I, I have had all of my <clears throat> students survive the online lesson learning uh, process and have actually had students, new students join me during the pandemic. And, you know, I think that this is the beginning of an opening up of sorts. That's awesome. What do I hope? I I hope to graduate within the year. Woohoo! Um, yes. <laughs> yep, that's a that's a big goal. And then from there, you know, I just want to continue my my work as a music doctor. I don't want to just be a typical piano teacher where you come and you play your scales and you play your etudes and you play your repertoire and you play your J.S. Bach presentations. I'm not really interested in that. I am much more interested in a holistic approach of getting to know a student and teaching them how to become intrinsically motivated to play the piano and intrinsically motivated to learn pieces that feel good to themselves to play. So much of learning an instrument, especially at a young age, is extrinsically motivated and, you know, based on music festivals and exams and, you know, essentially giving your control to outside forces, whether it be at a music festival and you're trying to get first place or at a music exam where you're trying to get first class honors. I'm much more interested in developing students who will have a lifelong love of playing the piano, who even after they've graduated with their piano diploma, they go back to the piano and they still play. They know how to read. They want their children to play. It's a joyful, loving experience. Yeah, that's so great. I completely agree with all of those points. It's so important. And that's, that's the first thing that's on my teaching philosophy for 
everybody who wants to read it. Just kidding. Don't. Um, <laughs> but the first thing that I, I write on there is teaching kids to be lifelong learners and have a lifelong appreciation of music because more than likely your students aren't going to go out and pursue music professionally. The majority of them won't. But the more people that we can put out into this world that have an appreciation and a love for what we do and how much we can change the world with music and I sound very mm -hmm. kumbaya hippie right now but the more that we I'm can with do you that, I am so with exactly you. <laughs> that's it's so important right and that's what should our, our main mission should be as educators for sure yes I'm I'm interested in the whole human the whole person yeah so maybe we should maybe we should start a music school or something <laughs> yes I'd be so down that would be so great <laughs> yeah it's great chatting with someone who's like-minded. I've really enjoyed this uh, this time with you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate, you know, talking about your experiences and your fascinating research. I was reading your bio oh, thank and I was like, yes, this is so great. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking out the time and talking with us today and sharing your experiences. This has been great. Oh, my pleasure. Really enjoyed myself. <laughs>